Welcome, everyone, to the Feelin' Film Podcast in our first episode of the new year, 2021. I'm Aaron, and with me as always, here to ring in the year by first looking back at the bright spots of 2020, which we actually do have, is my co-host, Patch. Hello, everybody, and Happy New Year. We are extremely excited for this because these discussions always tend to be an absolute blast. And even with the unparalleled changes to our viewing habits in 2020, we know that this conversation is going to be a ton of fun, too. Instead of just giving you our top 10 film lists, which you can actually find my own and Coles's top 10 lists on feelandfilm.com now, be sure to check those out. But in this episode, we're going to talk about some of our favorite performances, our highs, our lows, our favorite podcast episodes, and of course, what we're looking forward to in 2021. We really think that you're going to enjoy this one as much as we are. And so with that, we're just going to get started. Patrick, I love how we begin these episodes by talking about our favorite first time viewings of films that were not <laughs> released in the previous year. So we kind of we kind of like build it all up. Hey, we're going to talk about our favorite movies in 2020. And then let's talk about things that didn't come out in 2020 first. It's like a little bit of a misdirection. But I'm wondering, to start us off here, did those increase for you in 2020 because of the way that viewing habits may have changed? Or did they hold pretty steady? Yeah, they they did change. And I think it's fair to say that without saying 2020 was just a whack year for a lot of things. and. When you're not going to the theater regularly, when you miss out on that weekly, bi-weekly, whatever it is, experience, whether or not you're a film critic, you tend to sort of lose the momentum of things, obviously with stuff getting delayed and delayed and delayed and, and you know, looking at half the stuff that we were trying to see this last year pushed to this year, I did rewatch a lot of things. And you and I talked offline about how they're essentially two types of people, those that really embrace the new stuff, which is kind of what your personality leans toward, you know, what's coming up, what's new. And I'm grateful uh, when I'm not on, because I'm not on social media, you're constantly shooting me like, Hey, check this out. Hey, check this out. And for me, it's curated. <laughs> I, it, well, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely something I'm grateful for, but I'm also recognizing that I'm a person that likes the security blanket. I will say, man, I'm in a mood to watch blah. Like today I was at the gym and I was running and I was like, you know what? I see chefs back on Netflix. I'm going to pop that in. I'm going to watch that. And so last year, because there weren't a lot of regular theater viewings, we were doing a lot of rewatching anyway. That was just part of my world. If I was popping in a movie, it was not necessarily one that I had on a bucket list. Hey, I need to watch this. But it was more of a hey, I haven't seen this in a while. I don't want to give myself a little bit of a, a reconnect on this one. So yeah, I was definitely higher on the rewatch side than uh, than a lot of people. So these are not supposed to be rewatches. Is that what you picked? These no, are no, no, new no, 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 films. No, 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 no. These are, these are new films that I'd... So let me, let me clarify. I watched new films last year for the first time that didn't come out last year right okay but the majority of my time spent watching movies was rewatches in general yeah so I'm, I'm getting so to clarify got it. it gets confusing but yes i had several first time watches that didn't release in 2020 and i think part of that also in what you're saying the reasoning is also because of the podcast because we didn't get to go to the theater and so 
without having similar access to the movies at the exact same time and without so many of the films that we typically would have covered not even actually coming out yet, we chose to just make it easier on ourselves and go back and cover movies that had already come out in the past. And so I think that led to a lot of new discoveries for both of us because we ended up watching things for the podcast that were older, but yet ones that we were catching up with for the first time. So I think that that probably contributed to it as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, give me one of yours. So I know we've got this listed and I'll just tell you right up front that if you listen to our bonus content, folks, I usually cheat. I've been trying to rein myself in. I did not try to rein myself in and my notes are gigantic and I, I just won't talk through detailed everything, but I do have a lot of things that I want to kind of just touch on. So just warning you up front, there's going to be more than three for me, but what is something that you watched for the first time that you loved in 2020? Well, this was all three of these. I'm going to tell you the three that I picked were ones that we talked about on the show at some point, either as a main episode or spoiler alert as some bonus content. And the first one was Whiplash. It was Damien Chazelle's directorial debut, I believe. And it was one that I remember having in our voodoo library. And at some point early in the year, I was like, you know what? This is before the pandemic hit. I was thinking, man, I really want to start watching some of these movies that are so late, so highly acclaimed that we, but we haven't covered yet. And we weren't necessarily going to. So Whiplash was the first one on my list. And I really, really fell in love with it. It's everything that people talk about it is. It's intense. It's incredibly dramatic, very well written. And obviously jazz is at the centerpiece of it. But I absolutely fell in love with the performances. It's one that has so much of what you would expect from Damien Chazelle. Yes, it's his first film, but it's a great entry into understanding not only his directorial style, but some of the themes that play out in other movies that we've gotten familiar with, like La La Land uh, or even First Man. And I think it's a great entry point for people who don't really know much about him. And it's a lot like when you're watching Warrior or something like Miracle, where you don't necessarily care about the the main like crux of it where it's about jazz a jazz band or boxing or hockey it's about these character developments and about these relationships and Chazelle does a fantastic job in this movie of getting us to care about the main characters and to really elevate the tension that you start feeling because it's one thing to watch the abuse play out on screen it's another thing to feel that abuse and I definitely felt that that first time that I was watching it yeah, that's awesome. Not quite his directorial deb debut, but it was his big screen debut in a sense. Yeah. His yeah, first I, film was much smaller and nobody really sees it. So <laughs> it's what he's known for. Is yeah, there we go. Guy and Madeline on a Park Bench, I think is what it's called, is his gotcha. actual first film. But it's it's like a much, much smaller kind of student film that he made way back when he was in college. Uh, I kind of am going to group mine in a sense. So. I often watch films of the same genre or with similar themes based on what I get into in other parts of my life or I follow a rabbit trail down a hole essentially and kind of go on one path. So if I 
fall in love with something about cooking, I might go on a binge and watch all of the movies <laughs> about cooking and something like that. And so one of the things that happened to me this year was sports documentaries hit at the beginning of the year or springtime, I would say. Generally, this happened around the time that The Last Dance was released, and I was watching that every Sunday night. Phenomenal, by the way, not uh, on this list because it was new for 2020. But two of the ones that I went through amongst a much larger amount of ESPN 30s for 30s that I watched were Bad Boys and Celtics Lakers Best of Enemies. And both of these documentaries were like five-star sports docs for me. Just the way in which they captured basketball in the 80s and even into a little bit of the 90s in the Lakers and Celtics cases. But the rivalries, the way the game was played at the time, and specifically on the Bad Boys side, it's such an in-depth look at how that team was built and then how it fell apart and sometimes we tend to forget the teams that don't have the iconic superstar like a Jordan and I think that as we get further and further away from that era the new generations are not going to have the same knowledge of these teams from the 80s much like when we were growing up I wouldn't have had knowledge of the teams from the 60s or the 70s as much but the Pistons had a dynasty at one point, and they're remembered for being the bad boys. They're remembered for their rough play and being just brutally punishing on the court. And yet there was so much more to them than that, so much more talent there. And it was really amazing to me to get to see everything about that. And like any documentary that I actually give five stars to, it's a captivating presentation. So on top of information, it's something visually interesting to watch and not just presented in a very kind of ho-hum, boring manner. And then the Lakers and Celtics one is just phenomenal. As a Laker fan, it, it was great. It was fantastic. It's four and a half hours long of nothing but Lakers and Celtics. The Lakers sections of the film are narrated by Ice Cube, a huge Laker fan, and the Celtics sections of the film are narrated by Donnie Wahlberg, a Boston kid himself. And that was really cool. They'll actually kind of some of the narration ends up being smack talk between the two of them about the teams, which is just it's a blast. It's it feels almost interactive, like you're watching it right there with them in person or something. And I think that, you know, one of the things that made it stick out to me was an explanation in the documentary where Ice Cube is discussing the difference in rivals and enemies and how these players on these two teams went through so much against each other over and over and over and became tied to each other for life. You know, you can't think about Magic Johnson without thinking about Larry Bird. It just is the way that life goes. And I hate the Leprechaun and I hate the Celtics even more after watching this. Uh, but it, no, it's it's a beautiful, awesome documentary, and just those two stuck out. I have a whole list of them on my letterbox that I watched that are all good, but those two specifically. What else for you? Well, speaking of Damien Chazelle indirectly, <laughs> we also covered uh, Moonlight for the first time, and that was one that was incredibly impactful. This was a blind spot for me. It wasn't one that I was 
legitimately seeking out and not for any particular reason. I just never had a reason to see it other than the masses were like, hey, it won Oscar for Best Picture, and rightly so. And so this is one of those movies where you're late to the party, but the party itself was still rocking. Like It's a fantastic movie in terms of just being incredibly well-received, incredibly done. And I think for me, Aaron, this is one of those movies that is, I think, of quiet. Like, it, it's not bombastic. It It's significant, and it makes that kind of social impact. But it's the way this story is told in three parts. It feels poetic. And there aren't a lot of movies that do that, where you have a narrative that is cleverly done. You know, Christopher Nolan is one of those guys that takes a narrative and cleverly distorts it for the purpose of creating a type of tone. When you watch Moonlight, you're watching it in a way where you're getting this complete story of this guy being expressed by three different actors and seeing that kind of synced up that's difficult to do. It's difficult to find three people that can articulate mannerisms and vocal expression. And what that does is it completely makes you forget about, oh, he doesn't really look like him as an older person. You don't really think about that because of the fact that you're so immersed into these three versions of this person. And so watching this guy live his life between, you know, young teenager adult seeing how the events of his life shaped who he was how friendships came in and out how some friendships stayed with him how they changed over time it truly is the definition of a coming-of-age story that's told over years as opposed to something like a summer which is still fine too but watching moonlight for the first time it definitely made me appreciate the fact that it won Best Picture, but I think Moonlight, like maybe a decent chunk of Oscar winners in the past, is worthy of that kind of staying power. I imagine when we look back on that year where you see La La Land and Moonlight and all these other great movies that deserve the Oscar, it's not going to be a movie that we're like, yeah, it won, but... There were others? No, it's going to be, it won, and this is why. And it's not because it was better than other movies. It's because it stands the test of time. And especially when we're getting into this new kind of Oscar nomination credentials where we don't know what we're actually going to get here in the next two or three years. I mean, it's going to be kind of crazy. And so... To look back on that and to be able to experience Moonlight for the first time was really, really uh, a great experience for me. Yeah, I was pumped that you responded to it as well as you did. And that movie's going to come up a little bit later. I'm going to mention it, surprisingly, uh, which is kind of interesting. I, I like that you picked that one. And also maybe that you did that to hurt me again every what? time. <laughs> Every time I rewatch it, every time somebody brings it up, it's like, oh, and it won Best Picture. <laughs> oh, and re related to Damien Chazelle, remember that time that, you know, like his heart was broken on stage for all of us to see <laughs> in live television? That was fun. No. I also, re I also remember that had probably one of my favorite intros 
to the podcast ever where we basically mm-hmm. parody that. So. Yeah, much to my chagrin. Yeah. Uh, my next couple I'll mention, uh, Samurai Flicks. So I was playing Ghost of Tsushima from uh, on the PlayStation 5. Or, well, I wasn't playing on the PlayStation 5 at the time. I was playing on PlayStation 4 this summer. Uh, and this is an open world game where you play as a samurai. And so I wanted to watch a whole bunch of samurai flicks because I was kind of in that mood. And I caught up with Yojimbo for the first time, uh, a Kurosawa movie that is plays out sort of like a Western and really, really loved that one. And Harakiri, which is uh, a movie that, you know, that word is very similar to Harry Carey, um, which would be committing suicide. And it was the act of a, sui- a samurai committing kind of ritual suicide uh, due to dishonor or something of the sort. And it was one that also kind of blew me out of the water. Just it's got one of those classic um, Japanese stories that are full of twists and not at all what you think they're going to be. And so both of those movies hit the spot this summer for me. And a little bit different, but kind of along the same path for me with that one was a movie called Red Cliff, which is directed by John Woo and was not something I was expecting from him. But it is a lengthy, I want to say close to, if not maybe over three hour action epic and just absolutely phenomenal, Uh, incredible story, felt almost like an Asian version of Lord of the Rings to me. And I thought it was excellent. Uh, I was engrossed in it, just entranced from the first moment. The characters are built up. It's one of the things I like about television, even though I don't watch a ton of it, is I like that characters have time to be developed. And a lot of times in movies, especially in epics, you need to have characters develop over time. You need to go through drama swings with the characters and it feels better if you have more time with them and it does that in this one and also you know as it being an action epic and a war epic there's subterfuge that comes into play in really interesting and neat ways and i just can't recommend red cliff enough that was a a real highlight for me of the year what else you got well my third one was one that you recommended and ended up making some bonus content for us, and that was the zombie comedy, Hey, Don't Read Anything Past the Synopsis, One Cut of the Dead. And this made its debut, I think, on Shudder. And I remember you specifically telling me, okay, I'm going to tell you about a movie. Here's the premise. I want you to go to Shudder and watch it. Don't read anything else about it. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And so I get through like the first 30 minutes and I'm like, what are you on that you think I'm going to love this? This is kind of goofy. The camera work feels kind of weird. These guys are looking off camera for some reason. And then the back half of the movie just opens up this world of wow. Now, before I go any further, is this a sport? Do we decide this is a spoiler free episode or are we oh absolutely yeah this, okay this should be you shouldn't give it away okay so at this point i will tell you this became probably one of my favorite watches of last year both with the new movies coming out last year as well as what i was watching before that 
And I'll tell you, if you are a filmmaker, if you are interested in the creative process, if you're interested in weird ways of telling a story, memento style or inception style, this is a movie you need to see. And I had never responded to a movie of this genre, not only a zombie apocalypse, but a foreign film at that. I mean, you're talking about two genres that are not going to be things I gravitate towards at all. And for me to not only love it, but then buy the Blu-ray with commentary and all this extra stuff, steelbook, whatever, that says a lot. So if you're listening, listeners, and you feel like you relate to me, generally speaking, as you're listening to this show over the years, this is one you need to see. It's on Shudder. I believe it's on some of the other streaming services that you can rent, but it's 90 minutes of your life that you will come back and thank me. So I got to say, of my old you know, non-2020 movies, this is my number one. Good stuff, man. I knew that it would be there for sure, and uh, rightfully so. And yes, listeners, if you've not checked it out, all of our bonus content now for Patreon supporters is actually open to the public after two weeks. So it's got a little bit of an exclusivity window there for patrons, and then you can check it out too. So if you go to patreon.com slash film, you can hear our episode on One Cut of the Dead right now. It is there and available and open for everyone. Well, I'll run through the rest of mine. I went on a bit of a silent film kick for a week or so during the year. I don't like watch a lot of silent films. It's not a genre I'm super familiar with, but a couple that totally stood out were Buster Keaton's The General and Sherlock Jr. The latter, especially both of those were phenomenal films, but Sherlock Jr. just kind of really blew me away. The ingenuity of the action and the camera work for this era is just it's unreal to be honest that they were able to pull off some of the effects that they are able to do Uh, and then just the way in which the storytelling kind of captivated me without words was a little bit surprising i didn't think that i would fall for this type of film as much as i did and i definitely want to get into some charlie chaplin whose films i have not gotten a chance to dive into yet racing films also happened i kind of fell in love with f1 during the year and kind of discovered that sport for the first time and so i went on a binge of racing documentaries and movies and the ones that stood out the most of those are grand prix a film from i believe it was in the 60s Um, again almost like an epic this is nearly three hour film if not over that as well It's, it's super long and just it's really really good covers a long season and lots of interpersonal drama between competing drivers and wives and girlfriends and all kinds of stuff that's going on it's got deaths and it's very accurate to the time period uh, of f1 at that era and i just just fell in love with it uh senna documentary about Ayrton senna one of the greatest f1 racers of all time excellently put together presentation uh unfortunately he passed away far too soon in in a crash um well before he was ready to go and just learning about him and his rivalries and his incredible talent was something special and helped kind of 
give me some background into the sport as I was just kind of consuming it at large rate for the first time ever. Uh, and then Art of Racing in the Rain. I didn't watch it the first time that it came out. We were going to cover it on the podcast and ended up bailing because it got bad critical reviews, even though we had both been looking forward to it. Uh, bad move on our part to <laughs> even guess at what other people thought about the movie was going to be what we thought about the movie because I ended up falling in love with it and uh, then we ended up covering it on the podcast later. And so getting to experience that one, I just, it, it's a, an amazing film to me. At I, a comfort film, I think, in a lot of ways is what it will be for me. Uh, and it goes, you know, beyond just the racing now. It started off as racing and then I got a dog. And now it has even more meaning to me. I knocked something off of my La La Land influence list. So here we go. I'm going to end this with a positivity on the La La Land side. And that was uh, Rebel Without a Cause. That one is amazing. It has an incredible reputation and lives up to the hype. Got to see the Griffith Observatory and why it's referenced in tons and tons of films afterward. And got to see uh, the great performance by, I think it's... Jim D James Dean, right? James Dean is is the uh, actor that we lost again, also in his early twenties, unfortunately, I think due to a car crash. Um, and for, and it, it just is amazing. I think that uh, you know, a lot of classics for me don't hold up. Patrick, when I go watch them, I'm like, eh, okay, you know, that was fine. I don't understand why this is on the AFI Top 100 list at in 2020. Like, there's so many better films, in my opinion. But this is one that I thought, wow, okay, you know, the rare occasion that everything about it was just completely captivating still, and it's just as good today as it probably was then. Last but not least, technically, I didn't see this for the first time, but Anna and the Apocalypse, I rewatched it a few weeks ago, and just, I don't know what happened, but I fell madly in love with it. We just talked about it on our last episode, 265. So feel free to go listen to that and you can hear me gush for a little over an hour about that movie. I won't go into more of it now, but I absolutely love it. And it was maybe my favorite discovery in a sense. Again, it doesn't quite fit the bill because I didn't discover it last year or this year for the first time, but I fell in love with it this year for the first time. And that was very, very special. Awesome. Okay. Next up, what is our next section? I have, I don't think I have these in order. So our next section actually would be favorite non-film entertainment. And it's not in my, do you have that down? Mm -hmm. Okay, okay, cool. All right. Uh, I actually don't have a enormous list for this. So I'm, I'm kind of in line a little bit better now. Okay. Uh, I know at least we're going to share probably at least a couple of these, but what you got? Uh, well, I'll just give my two because I think we'll both show oh, these. Those are probably my two. <laughs> yeah. Then <laughs> Ted Lasso stands out on the top. This was the this if if Cobra Kai had not debuted in 2021 season three, Ted then it would have taken the cake. Or if it had last year, then it would have taken the cake. Ted Lasso Apple TV Plus is a TV show that we needed last year. It Amen. is absolutely hysterical it is full of heart it has incredible writing i love a comedy aaron that puts drama appropriately like that has the ability to provide levity 
when needed. And when you do that in a drama, that's when it's effective and you can provide levity appropriately. The opposite is true too, where you have a comedy that has moments of drama that push the story along. And when you talk about Ted Lasso, a series that was birthed out of a series of shorts that were promoting the Premier League debuting on NBC Sports, that's incredible. And that was five, six years ago. So to see the lead of Jason, uh, Jason Sudeikis, no, Jason yep. Sudeikis. Yeah, you got it, Jason Sudeikis. Yeah, thank you. To see him take a character like that who's on screen in those shorts for five to six minutes tops and create a 10-episode, 30-minute dramedy out of that is absolutely phenomenal. And I think a lot of people share my opinion, particularly the folks over at Apple TV who have now renewed season three, even before season two has even released. And this is probably the show from all of last year that I recommend to everybody. I say, look, I get that we're living in a paywall world now, that every network now has their own paywall. And so if you subscribe to everything, you're basically paying for cable again. I get that. I will say this, $5 a month, 10 episodes, that alone is worth the five bucks. Go spend your $5, watch Ted Lasso and come back and thank us. Watch Ted Lasso. Watch The Morning Show. Watch Greyhounds. Yes. Watch yes. On the Rocks. Yes. Watch Boys State. Yes. Literally, there are probably five different pieces of media on Apple TV Plus that are on my personal top 20 article that I mentioned earlier that's posted on feelandfilm.com. Apple TV Plus, like if we were going to give an award out, Patrick, for like our favorite streaming service, it would honestly be a t- it would be so tough to pick between the two, but HBO Max and Apple TV Plus have been phenomenal this year. And yes, I know Netflix has put out 16,000 movies and and like five of them are getting Oscar buzz because, you know, in 16,000, you're going to have a couple hits. So let me just, yeah, let me just say to that, that there's something about curated content that stands above a massive amount of content with a few sparks here and there. And when you have something like Apple TV plus or HBO max, granted HBO max has a ton of stuff on it too, but there's something about those two streaming services that feels like it's more curated. Like, hey, we've got something for everybody, and it feels more original. It's not just dumping a bunch of stuff that you've already seen. I love having movies on HBO Max that I've seen before. It's great to queue that up and get, oh, great, they are racing the rain. It's on there. Great. Big Bang Theory, it's on there. But there's also original stuff on there that I gravitate towards. And Apple TV Plus probably stands above that because of the fact that it doesn't have other stuff filling in those gaps. There's no gaps to fill in. And I think Ted Lasso stands above even those other ones. And it's not like those are bad necessarily. It's just if I had to rank them, Ted Lasso, Morning Show, and then those others come in like, you know, 1 C D E F G, you know. Yeah, I'm with you. Ted Lasso, we've said it over and over on podcasts and that's because we want you to keep hearing it <laughs> or if you're just listening for the first time, we want to be sure you heard it in that it, it's probably our favorite thing of the year, period. So we agree there, 100%. Can't wait for season two. I want to rewatch it, Patrick. I've been aching to rewatch it, but like, I don't want to do it yet because I know I want to rewatch it before season two comes out. Right. And I'm, trying to, I'm trying to hold off. 
I got so much other stuff to watch, but part of me, it is that good. It is that hopeful. It is that positive that I just want to consume it again because it makes me so happy. And yeah, and that's part of why I fell in love with Anna, I think, is because, you know, even though there's some dourness in that, it made me so happy to watch it. And I was like, man, I didn't realize how much I needed this feeling in 2020, how, how yeah. you know, infrequent I had had it. Well, I'm sure. sure our other shared one is probably Friday Night Lights. Yes. Rewatching well, and, for you yeah, and yeah, watching absolutely. through for me together. I'll let you go ahead and start. All right. So Friday Night Lights is up there with the West Wing. It's one that I will just throw on and I can watch the series straight through. And, you know, this is me, the rewatcher. I mean, that might be a nickname for me as far as, you know, public persona is the rewatcher because that's what I do. And oftentimes TV shows and particularly shows that I absolutely love will take priority over new movies or new television that is out there. And it's because of shows like Friday Night Lights, a show that I will say on the record has probably the best. No, not probably. It has the best pilot episode in television capturing everything that the show is going to be about capturing everything about the world that the show is going to live in West Texas football and giving us a reason to tune in for the next week. When this show came out on NBC, Aaron, I remember already being in love with the movie and I'm thinking, how are they going to do this? Are they just going to basically have a game every week? Is this what's going to happen? And man, my ignorance was completely thwarted when I watched it after the fact. There is a cast of people that over the course of the series, you just absolutely gravitate towards one or two or four or eight at any given point. Tim Riggins, I think he is probably the co-anchor of the show next to Coach Taylor. And for me, watching the show is fantastic, but getting a chance to watch it alongside you and being able to experience these season finales and at some point hopefully in the next few weeks the series finale of season five that's been equally as fun because the whole reason we started this podcast came out of our love of talking about Battlestar Galactica and this sort of reinvigorated that didn't have an agenda didn't have a time look I would always you know my rule was if you're on episode three I'm gonna go to episode four because I know that your time is a little bit is different than mine, and I have pockets to watch a 45-minute episode. I'm going to make that time, and I have no problem skipping ahead. So when we get those responses of like you sending me Voxer messages saying, oh my gosh, I can't believe Tim just did that again, or man, when is Buddy Garrity going to stop acting like this? I'm like, yep, absolutely. Friday Night Lights is one of those shows that invites conversation and to me that's what birth feel and film and so when you have more of that when you have it on a 45 minute scale as opposed to a two hour scale it's it's different but it's still kind of the same in terms of being it's a different conversation and it's a different kind of excitement and I think for both of us for a while, I, we were considering like, you know, Tuesday is Friday Night Lights night. You know, when you had time, I knew that you were watching them on Tuesday nights. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to queue up two episodes and watch them on Tuesday night. And so it was like watching something like Game of Thrones, you know, tuning in each week. I knew it was going to happen. 
that I was ready to experience that as well. And that's how I feel about Ted Lasso is the next time I watch it, if it's not before the second season, it's going to be alongside somebody else who hasn't seen it yet because I love experiencing that with somebody else. Man, you're putting it great. I, yes, that was next on my list for that reason too. And it has been a phenomenal experience to go through it with you. And I love that you're always staying ahead of me for that very reason, because I'm able to react in real time and I'm able to text you and go, Oh my God, this happened. And Oh my gosh, why is this guy doing this and saying this? And it's not a matter of ruining something for you because you're refreshed at that point, kind of ready to go and react back to me, which is what we loved doing so much when we were going through Battlestar Galactica is being able to converse, which is like you said, what led to this podcast existing in the first place. Ironically, that it was TV shows, and then we talked about movies. But hey, whatever. Uh, it's, so, yeah, it's been amazing. And of course, you know, you tack on top of that that it's easily one of the best TV shows I've ever seen in my life and will go down as a top fiver for me of all time, which you knew going in that it was going to be that way for me. And it has definitely accomplished that. And so it has been just an incredible experience. I think the patience to get through it, you know, it takes a while and we've, we've had some lulls where there have been weeks where we weren't able to get anything in or I wasn't able to get anything in, but it has been a consistent or constant, I should say in 2020 for us. And I like that. And, uh, and I'm really excited for whatever the next one's going to be. I actually think that might come up somewhere else in this podcast, but yeah, Friday night lights, definitely a highlight of my year. And like you said, I'm excited to get to that series finale. I think we're like five or six episodes away. We're really close. I was hoping to get there by the end of 2020, but holiday time gets crazy with awards and stuff and family time. So it'll happen soon. The other couple I want to just real quickly hit on formula one drive to survive. This may have been the singular piece of trigger that got me into F1 racing. My roommate Ryan recommended this show on Netflix to me. It is a documentary kind of style. It's a live filmed show, but it is put, so they follow the season and film it and then cut it together to make it extra dramatic and then put it out afterwards in a series format on Netflix. It made me fall in love with this sport and get extremely interested in it. And of course, that led to me watching an actual race and starting to follow some of the drivers and learn about their personalities, which I really enjoy because they all have very big personalities. We're talking about a sport that at its best, there are 20 people in the world that have seats in order to do this job. That's it. There's 20 people in the entire world that get to compete in this sport <laughs> and there's a lot of ego, a lot of pride, and a lot that comes with that. And a lot of them are young. So there's maturation issues. You know, there are, there's a team element to F1 that I didn't even realize existed, Patrick. I thought, oh, you know, it's boring because there's this guy, you know, Lewis Hamilton, and he's won like every championship for the last two decades or something. And so how simple, but there's more to it than that. There's everybody around the driver who creates that car and makes that car what it is each and every week there's pit stops and strategies and anyway this series like hooked me and got me into the sport proper and now actually i'm curious when season three comes out 
because I followed a majority of this season in real time, I wonder if I'm going to feel the same way about the documentary show because I've actually seen it play out and now I'll be rewatching it with that kind of extra dramatized flair to it and it might not hit the same way. Like it might turn me off a little, uh, but we'll see. Either way, I'm in a sport because of this and super happy about that. And then video games. It's been a big year in games for me. I don't know if 2021 is going to follow that. I have two brand new consoles now. Uh, the next-gen versions of PlayStation and Xbox, so I'm ready to roll. But last year, when pandemic hit and staying home all the time and being quarantined, I was able to start gaming. Also started a games podcast and did a season of content called The Games We Love Podcast, where I was able to interview folks. You were on the show to talk about uh, The Last of Us with me, which was amazing. And I got to converse with some actual games journalists and people in the industry people that make games people that talk about games and it was really fun and it's just a great several months of my life that uh, will always go down as a highlight of 2020 even if this podcast never continues if there's never a season two or never any more content it was amazing while it happened and it led to me playing a lot more games during the spring and summer this year than I have in years, recent years past since the podcast started. Okie dokie. Moving on into our favorite performances, Patrick. Let's hit on a couple of these. Who you got? Are we going male, female first or male first and then female? Does it matter? I don't think it matters. I mean, I have okay. a bunch of names. I'm not going to go into great, great detail about each of them because I don't want to, you know, belabor the point here, but yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so what, whoever, male, female, doesn't really matter. Well, okay. So full disclosure, obviously I didn't see as many movies as you did this year. And, um, so mine's going to be a little bit more curated than, than yours, but all these are, are well-deserved. My, uh, my first male performance of the year is Riz Ahmed from the sound of metal. I didn't know much about the movie going into it. And so when it was given to us on the, as a screener, I was more than pleasantly surprised at the story itself. I think if there was, if there was a, a non-human performance, it would be the sound editing in this. I think that should take an Oscar, obviously. But watching Riz Ahmed play this part and take on the ownership of acting as if he doesn't have hearing or acting as though his hearing is slowly leaving him. This is a performance, Aaron, that I think is definitely going to get Oscar buzz if it hasn't already. Um, I haven't seen anything. I haven't read anything necessarily. But I will say that the performance itself stood out when I watched it. But what put him over the top for me was getting a chance to listen to an interview with him on NPR a couple of weeks ago and hearing how that performance affected his worldview didn't change his life necessarily but he in going through this performance and walking through this character's journey he saw this need to reaffirm the fact that there are people around us that want to help and that we need help we need that kind of grace if you will and if we don't give that to other people, if we don't receive that from other people in a healthy way, we end up 
as human beings, as people, being completely depraved. We can't be all one and none of the other. We can't be leeches. We can't just suck the life from other people who are willing to help us. And at the same time, we can't just give and give and give and give and give until there's nothing left. And as I'm listening to this interview, I'm hearing him talk about how seeing the world through those eyes helps him understand people more, particularly those that have a limitation. And I don't know if he called the limitation. I want to say he did. But adapting to those things and being able to see the world differently and not seeing it less than. And I thought that was pretty fantastic. He also talked about what it was like to act in and perform in a way where he wasn't an Islamic terrorist. He specifically talks about wanting to take on roles that don't perpetuate that stereotype because he wants not only more diversity, but he wants to represent that culture in a way that says, look, there's more to us than just turbans and guns. We're not that. Obviously playing on to what he was talking about prior to that with looking at other people and understanding their worldviews. But his performance by itself was enough to, to give me that uh, that position in terms of giving him uh, a, a little feel and film award there for the performance. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and so since you're not on social media and you're not following this, he is considered probably the front runner along with maybe okay. Anthony Hopkins in a movie called the father for the Oscar. So he will almost assuredly be nominated and it has a very good chance of taking home an award and already has been in critics groups across the country. So uh, phenomenal performance for sure. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. He is the strength of that movie for me. And, and he is not the reason that I have to knock it down a little bit. <laughs> so <laughs> won't be seeing Olivia cook on my list. Uh, I'll knock Riz Ahmed was on mine as well. And uh, for all of the reasons you just spoke about in deep depth there, um, he's phenomenal. It's right up there with his performance in Venom, I would say. Uh, let's see. <laughs> uh, ben Affleck, The Way Back, uh, one of my favorite films of the year. A movie that has grown on me since the first time I've seen it. I think I've watched it maybe three times now, and it just grew into a favorite. It's not one of those movies that I watched once and was like, hey, five-star movie. It's a movie that I watched and was like, man, I really like that. And then I watched it again after learning about some of Ben Affleck's struggles with alcohol himself and how this film was very cathartic on a personal level. Watched it through a little bit of a different lens and was like, man, this is a really great movie. And watched it again for the podcast and was like, you know what? I love this movie. Like, this is a movie I would just watch over and over again. It's that kind of, it's a rewatchable for me. And that is a huge part of what makes movies stick for me. Uh, it's just important. And so his performance in this, of course, it's his movie. Uh, it's all about his character and what he's going through. Uh, I think it's incredible. Maybe his best of his career. I, I Sometimes I don't like to say that because it feels like I'm discounting people's other performances. And I don't want to do that because he's had a phenomenal career. He's one of our generation's best actors. And I think that he should be recognized as such. But this is one that will stand out for me. And it's one that I think that is Oscar-worthy nomination. That's not how you say that. It's Oscar nomination-worthy. And it probably won't happen because it's a movie that not as many people are going to have seen, not as many people are going to be as high on. And it's a fairly 
simplistic performance. You know, you look at it compared to like something like Riz Ahmed. He's playing a man going deaf. You know, it's very specific, difficult type of performance, people would say. And this is just a guy playing a drunk <laughs> and then getting better. But there is so much pathos in this performance. And, you know, you and I went in depth into this during the episode on this, which I really enjoyed as well about the details in how he plays drunk. It's probably the most accurate and I, I'll use the best best. I don't like using that word, but like it is a performance that sucks authentic. you into that. Yeah. Authentic. Authentic. There, thank you. That's the word. Yes. It's authentic. It sucks you into that and it makes you feel what this person might be going through and how they are viewing the world around them. Not just mm -hmm. looking at them and going, Hey, that guy's drunk. But looking at him and going, hey, okay, now I understand how he sees the world while he's drunk. Mm -hmm. And it's not just a bunch of blurry camera, you know, making yeah. it goofy. And because of that, it really did feel authentic and it was special for me. And, and, it, and it's hopeful. It ends on a hopeful note. It ends on just one of my favorite last shots of the year by far. And hearing Ben talk about how it literally helped save his life and change his entire world around to where he became a person who is now in a better place with his ex-wife, able to co-parent better, has a new relationship that seemingly is just incredibly blossoming with Anna de Armas and has been over the last year and just they're completely in love. It, it makes me so happy to see this for him kind of coming out of that dark place he had been in for several years because of a movie, right? And a movie that I love. And so yeah, it was probably going to be the one overall that might be the most meaningful, you know, my most, well, it was our award and our end of year awards. We have like a emotional performance award. I forget what we called it now, um, but this is one that I would hope he'd be highly eligible for as well. Yeah, he was the second on my list of the top two for all the reasons that you mentioned. And I think what makes him stand out in this performance is the fact that he portrays what it means to be an authentic alcoholic. Because when you say drunk, you think of stumbling, you think of a stereotype. An alcoholic is someone who has a disease, someone who is battling something. And I do think that a movie like this will get dismissed because it has a, quote, happy ending or a hopeful ending. We want to see tragedy without hope, which I think is kind of sadistic, personally, if that's what makes an Oscar-worthy performance, just that, I think that's just stupid. And when you have movies that give you hope at the end, I don't think they should be dismissed because that is truth. It may not be what's always going to happen, but we need that kind of hope. And in relation to Riz Ahmed's performance, I won't say it's a similar ending, but it's a satis it's an equally satisfying ending. It's unconventional in the way back, but it makes sense for his character. And I think that for me, that's not necessarily wrapping something up in a bow. <laughs> and again, like you mentioned, you can hear more of our thoughts on that with our way back episode. But I think that his performance, because he brought such an intimate personal connection to it, it's what made it feel authentic and it didn't feel contrived. None of it does. Even some of the 
what do you call them? Some of the cliches that are used are done purposefully. They're not done to fill gaps. They're not done to make up time. Everything is done purposefully. And I can appreciate any director and any story that uses elements that are familiar in a purposeful way. And his performance really glues all that together because it is his journey. And it's one that is very unapologetic and one that leaves you going, you know what? Things can get better. Maybe they won't, but they can. And if it can leave you feeling that way, man, that's a good movie. What was one of your other ones? Or you said that was your number two? Yeah, I just I just had those two. Those are my two tops for the for the men. Oh, okay. Yeah, my other male is Meek Mill, or I I have so many. One of my other males is Meek Mill. Uh, this is a performance in Charm City Kings. He's a supporting actor in the film. And Meek Mill, if you don't know, is a rapper. <laughs> and that's this is the first, to my knowledge, acting performance of his career. Uh, I don't know if he's been anything else. He certainly hasn't been anything else that is of note. And he plays a character that is so far removed from what your stereotype would be of a rapper. It is of an ex-con, but he plays a very important mentor role in the young leading at child actor's life. And he is so soft-spoken and so tender. And it's just beautiful. There, There is a connection I had with him that is definitely among the deepest of myself with any characters that in, I got to experience in film in 2020. And so he really stuck with me. He makes a choice at the end of the movie that I know some people have some issues with and they would call maybe re- unrealistic or crazy or whatever. I found it to be, again, <laughs> much like Ben Affleck and, and Riz, there's something there's hopefulness about it that totally sealed the film as one of my favorites of the year. And so he is a huge, huge part of the reason why. And honestly, I go into these kind of skeptical, to be honest. I'm like, oh, there's a rapper playing an actor. Great. Like, I will be the first to tell you, I was suspicious of Aquafina for years. Like, I was like, I don't know if this is not going to work. Why is Aquafina suddenly going to be in movies? Dude, she's awesome. Like, whether it's Crazy Rich Asians or I think she's in Ocean's 8 as well. And, you know, she's in The Farewell. She's amazing as an actress. And I think that it reminds me not to automatically put people in a box because they're talented at one thing and that's what they do for a job. You know, people can do multiple things. And oftentimes talented, creative performers can do multiple genres and types of entertainment very well. And I think that Meek really showed that. And I've got my eye on him. So, you know, if he's going to be in any of their movies, I'm immediately going to want to see that now. Because I would like to know what else he can do. Uh, but this performance stuck with me on a, an emotional level big time. Great, man. I had one, I always had one like runner up because I think in the past we picked two and two. And so I stayed with the rules because I'm the rule follower in this family. And no, I had my, uh, my runner up, close runner up was uh, Kingsley Ben He plays Malcolm X in One Night in Miami. I think his performance is lights out, just incredible. It's up against like three other great performances. And so it's not that none of them were amazing. They were all just really great. But of the four, I think his storyline stood out to me 
because of some things I didn't know about his backstory. And I think that I resonated with uh, some of the emotional things that were going on with him, uh, which surprised me because I only know him as Malcolm X after all the stuff happened with him. Like Malcolm X <laughs> forward, not Malcolm X then or before. And I think the the way in which he shows the passion of what he believes in, it gets beyond preachy. It gets beyond rhetoric. It really does feel as though he believes what he's saying. And Kingsley does that in a way that uh, that makes me connect with it, which is surprising because I don't know much about the the individual, about Malcolm X himself, apart from what I've seen in movies and the things that I've read in books. And his performance kind of spurs me to want to find out more about his life before he became who we know as Malcolm X. That's awesome. Definitely a sign of, I think, a great performance is if it's going to inspire for biopic purposes, if it's going to make you want to go learn more about the person. Several of my honorable mentions are from that film as well. So Leslie Odom Jr. for me in One Night in Miami is just amazing. He plays Sam Cooke, which was the one of the four that I knew the least about. Like, I wasn't really familiar with his career. And he also gets to sing. There's a great song in the movie. He's probably going to be up for the Oscar. And I just love Leslie Odom Jr. from Hamilton uh, in the beginning. And so I just thought he was fantastic. He stole the show for me. Also, Aldous Hodge. Uh, the year of Aldous Hodge, in a sense, maybe for me, because he was in The Invisible Man and underappreciated in that film, I think. And then also he plays Jim Brown in One Night in Miami, and he's fantastic in both. Patrick, I need to see this guy become a star. He is a leading man. He absolutely has that gravitas about him and the potential to be one. And I cannot wait to see what opportunity he gets in the future to do so. And then, of course, he was also in Friday Night Lights as Voodoo Tatum. So, much different role. Much, much different role. He's been a good guy in the two movies this year. He was not <laughs> a good guy in the TV show that but I saw him But he was a in. football player. But he was a football player in two oh, of those. That's true. So, like, yeah. He, yeah, he went from a quarterback to a running back. Um, <laughs> Hugh Grant, supporting performance going way back to, like, yes, this movie came out in 2020. It's called The Gentleman. It came out in, like, January, I think feels like five years ago he gives a supporting performance that is freaking chef's kiss like amazing reminiscent of the type of impactful supporting performance that he gives in paddington too that just totally resonates and it will stick with you you will remember it you will not forget it and I, i hope that he doesn't get forgotten tom hanks in greyhound i think he is fantastic you would have told me that I would love that performance more than the one in News of the World, the Western. I would have been shocked because I would have assumed the Western would be better for me. But I just think that he nails everything in Greyhound. It's one of my favorite films of the year, and it's largely because of him. And I think the film is great because of his dedication to making it so as well. But his performance just seals it. And Delroy Lindo in Defy Bloods, uh, who I'm desperately hoping gets a Best Actor nod for his work in a movie that is, you know, very fractured for me, had some hits, had some misses, as we talked about in our episode, but Delroy Lindo was 100% hit in that movie, uh, best of his career, and absolutely worthy of recognition. So, 
female female actresses who you got well carrie mulligan tops the list for me i'm promising a woman that should be no surprise her performance in this is nothing short of just i'll call it incredibly wacky and i don't mean that in like a slapstick kind of way it's just suddenly bonkers like the way in which she harnesses this character who can be calm and straightforward in in one scene and then supposedly psychotic in another but have the agency to be both the the character she plays is one that needs that it's one that is clearly affected by trauma and she represents, I think, a potential wish list of what it would be like if you just acted on your emotions or acted on what was going on in your head. Not that that's necessarily like, I won't say it's bad or that what you're acting on isn't from truth, but the performance that she gives brings a sense of like fear and awkwardness to me as I'm watching what she does and at the same time there's a small level of empathy that i feel for her and we'll talk about it more we're going to cover it on the show here in the next several weeks but i think what makes her stand out more than anything is the way in which she's able to carry herself through all these different scenes because we get to know who she is in different kinds of methods and we get to see some of the she almost comes across as a as kind of a joker, Aaron. And I don't not just because of some of the ways that she dresses, but she if if there was a a female version of the Joker that was grounded, she would be it. And I think if we didn't have Joker existing prior to this with that performance, I think this would be the template of like, oh, here's what it's like to have someone living in your world who's been through an incredible amount of trauma and who doesn't know how to handle that. And he can only react to that trauma as opposed to respond to it. And she brings that to life on the big screen. And it's what makes promising a woman such an intriguing movie to watch. Yep. hundred percent agree with all of that on my list. My number one probably as well. And I've been a Carrie Mulligan fan for a long, long time going back to one of my absolute favorite performances in films with her in it and education um, towards the beginning of her career. She's much younger at that time, but she has to channel a different level here. And there is something about this performance that you can feel the whole way through how in sync she is with director Emerald Fennell. Like they are speaking the same language they are trying to get across the same messages, and I love that. I think that Carrie has deserved something like this. It's kind of unfortunate in a sense, too, because she's done some pretty standard work, standard drama films where she's phenomenal in, and I think something bombastic sometimes is what it takes to get people to suddenly take notice of you, and that's what's happening right now. Um, it's deserved. But I hope that it will encourage people to go back and maybe catch up with her filmography because she's incredible in everything. Every single thing she's ever been in. She's one of the best. 
And you're right. The Joker comparisons, you're not on social media, but hi, that has happened all over the place. <laughs> you will see a constant retweet of this like image of her smiling in the mirror with lipstick and the Joker smiling in the ear, in the ear, smiling in the mirror, putting on his makeup as well. Joaquin Phoenix, of course, being last year, it's easy and quick. Your mind is remembers that and goes to that. And of course, there's lots of questions about, you know, how is the Academy going to react here? Are they going to nominate her? Are they going to award her for a performance that is very similar to that, but stoked in a feministic point of view um, that is attacking toxic masculinity? Are they going to be okay and able to do that? And so it, it will be interesting to see. I hope that that doesn't come into play. I hope that the Academy's roster has been expanded to the point where we don't have to worry about that and they can just see the performance for what it is. She is this movie and it is what it is because of her. And so it's a stunning performance. I will say my other one uh, that I wanted to make sure I mentioned is Frances McDormand. She's going to be nominated for Nomadland. I know you haven't seen it yet, but Chloe Zhao's newest film, this also really falls on her shoulders. And, you know, Frances McDormand has been amazing her entire career, going back to her Oscar win for Fargo. And I think she was, did she win for Fargo? I think she won for Fargo. I can't remember if she won or if she was nominated. I think she won. And she also won for three billboards uh, a few years ago, but for a performance that I didn't particularly enjoy, <laughs> nor did I really care for that film. And this is a different kind of film that I do care for and is one of the year's best. And she is just this Midwestern woman who is stepping off into the land. You know, it's, it's a movie about the Americana uh, of our current times and how Small towns are getting essentially wiped off the map because they're not needed anymore in our big city-driven, technology-filled world. And people become these nomads, and they just gravitate from place to place. And the communities that they exist in, living in you know, these traveling RVs and you know, working odd jobs here and there seasonally across the country, she is outstanding in this picture and she doesn't have to do anything overly dramatic. It's one thing I love about Chloe Zhao. Part of it is she's also acting largely against non-actors, much like Chloe Zhao does with her film, the writer. It's not a bunch of supporting characters who are classically trained. It's people who were cowboys and part of this person's life and the writer. And it is actual nomads <laughs> and people that are living this life in this movie. And then you have Frances McDormand coming in and interacting with them. And it's as if she is as natural as they are. So she, you would never know the difference between them, which is a credit to both them as just being naturally who they are. But for her, as she's able to slip into their lives, as if she had been living it for all of these years, just like they had, that's a mark of her being able to inhabit that character in a way that is worthy of highest recognition. So she's incredible. And I know most of you haven't seen it yet because it's gotten delayed to like, I don't know, February or something. But eventually this movie is going to come out and it's going to be a huge Oscar contender. And you're going to agree with me when it happens. 
Awesome. Well, my other one was uh, Anya Taylor-Joy, but not for Emma. Uh, this is a limited series that came out on Netflix called The Queen's Gambit. I'm sure a couple the of people... The New Mutants. The New Mutants. That's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> Has that she's come out great, yet? Actually. I think it's been... Yeah, great. and she's actually good at it, and it's not a bad movie. It's okay. actually quite entertaining. Okay, good. Good. I'm glad. I just didn't know if it'd come out yet. I think it was going to release with The Flash, right? Anyway. Um, watching her in The Queen's Gambit, I... I <laughs> I would see so many trailers for Emma uh, at, at the latter part of 2019. And I was like this, I, I'd forgotten that other movies that she was in because they didn't focus on her face as much, but she's got those just incredibly wide eyes. And so when I see the Queen's Gambit pop up, the six episode limited series that Netflix put out based on a book, I think from like the 1980s, my wife and I were intrigued. We got some great recommendations from a friend of mine who said, yes, absolutely watch this. It's incredible. And she is fantastic in this, Aaron. I mean, she plays this. It, 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 you don't know the synopsis, people. It's about an orphan girl who becomes a chess prodigy, and it's about her journey in learning how to play chess, in taking on the best in the world, and also battling drug addiction. I mean, that that's not really spoiling it. You find that out in the first like 20 minutes of the first episode. But what makes her stand out to me is the fact that she carries this whole thing. Like, it's about her. And it's a show where you watch her and how she responds to the people in her life. So to go back to Riz Ahmed, a character who his character in the sound of metal and this reluctance to want to get help for this thing she responds in a similar way she, but hers comes from arrogance hers comes from a place where she learns to play this game and with the help of a psychotropic drug she's able to focus on getting better but that journey to get better doesn't seem to have an end because underneath all that what she's looking for is a family you know she is an orphan from the very first moment we meet her and that is a stigma that she cannot escape and so as she's going through and meeting players and being adopted by this family that's already broken watching her react to all these things it puts you in a position where you wonder, are you really wanting her to succeed or do you just want her to fall to the like bottom of the world in order to figure out the terrible choices that she's making are having all these repercussions and the film or excuse me, the series ends on a hopeful note and it's one that allows you to appreciate the relationships she's built, the people in her life that influence her in different ways over the course of these several years that we get to follow her. And it also gives you a little bit of a love for the game of chess. I found myself going, I don't know any of those moves, but that looks really cool. And it got me wanting to watch um, <laughs> Searching for Bobby Fischer again, You know, another rewatch on, on my list from last year. And I just, I loved her performance. I loved the fact that I was listening to an interview with the, I believe it was the director of the series on NPR. I've been listening to a lot of NPR lately. 
And he talks about the fact that she's got such an interesting face. And as a director, the things that he's done in the past, he didn't, he wasn't comfortable focusing on these close-up shots. He was always about quick cuts and action sequences and just, you know, the two shot over the shoulder. But this was going to be one of those series that needed to have a lot of close-ups, have a lot of shots on a character, slow pans in because chess is about reading your opponent. And he said when he cast her, it was because of her face. It was because of the way in which her face has that kind of interesting look to it. Those wide eyes that draw you into watching her, not only as an audience, but almost as an opponent of hers. Um, I love the way that she carries herself. Again, she's very confident in who she is, and she's also very aggressive. So when she loses, she loses bad emotionally. When she wins, she wins <laughs> excitedly. <laughs> and so I would say if you're going to watch any performance by her from last year, again, I haven't seen Emma, so I don't know. But I would say The Queen's Gambit is one of those that uh, you'll want to check out. It's, again, a uh, six-episode series. And I believe the episodes are between 45 minutes and an hour. So it's about a day's worth of uh, binging if you want to take time to do that. Good stuff. Yeah, it's one of the bigger things of 2020. Uh, even though it's not a movie, it's probably the most notable series. It's a long movie, is what I it think, is. that is out there. <laughs> Yeah, I think, I mean, for the most part, it's the thing that people have talked about the most. It's one of the things that caught the cultural zeitgeist. Yeah. And I haven't got around to catching up with it, but um, I've heard nothing but good things. So I'm not surprised at all that she would stand out. A couple of my honorable mentions. Uh, Yoon Yoo-jung uh, in Minari, she plays a grandmother, a Korean grandmother who is part of a family that is living in Arkansas in the 80s, in farmland. And they are immigrating there, and it is just a lovely coming-of-age kind of tale at, at, at times. And just really, it's all about the Amer American dream for the most part. Coming-of-age is not really the right term for it. It's, it's, a, it's an American dream-chasing movie. Uh, and she seals the show for me as a supporting character, as a grandmother that's living with the family. And who else have I got on here? Shailene Woodley. Always a highlight for me, a movie called Endings, Beginnings. It's not the best of movies overall, but it is a powerful, emotional performance for her that sends her through an incredible range of emotions and dramatic personal life events. And I thought it highlighted her amazing acting abilities very well. Um, stuck out to me. So people haven't probably seen that one, but Endings, Beginnings, if you're a Shailene Woodley fan. Uh, and Julia Garner for a movie called The Assistant. That is also one of the best of the year. She plays the assistant to an unnamed, unseen Hollywood executive. <laughs> and there, it's all about sexual harassment in the workplace. And so as you can imagine, um, she has to do a lot of physical acting with her expressions and her body language and her face and it is a really difficult watch but much like bombshell uh it's powerful and it really shines a light on some of the more subtle 
I think, kinds of sexual harassment that women go through in the office place in a way that is really naturally flowing. It doesn't, you know, make it all glossy and point a big spotlight on it. It's just part of the everyday life, which makes it all the more terrifying and awful um, in a way. But she's incredible in it. Any honorable mentions for you? Yeah, Rashida Jones stands out to me from um, from On the Rocks. This wasn't a movie that I absolutely loved, but her performance stood out to me. I think it's like most of these these films. Um, it's a a character study more than anything else. And what she does, her character is one that shows us what it's like to have that strength to be really kind of self-aware to understand like she's a writer she's very successful and at the same time her performance shows us that there's vulnerability in everybody and i liked that quiet performance that she gave it's kind of hard to pit yourself against bill murray (laughs) and his performances because they're those types of things where you know his performance is always going to be really interesting to say the least but to watch how she goes through this struggle throughout the film and to see how it affects her relationship with her dad played by bill murray i think it's quaint i think it's like lost in translation one of those films that doesn't have to do a lot and Rashida Jones performance is perfect for that because she's not having to do a ton we're just almost like we're watching her live her life and while nothing overly dramatic happens with her it's really kind of a slice of life movie and I think she's the perfect person the perfect actress to play that because she doesn't oversell it she is almost like an every woman and every person Um, I, I can't speak to that necessarily being a guy but I feel like watching her on screen it's as if we're watching okay this is what a typical successful woman could deal with that she's She's vulnerable to these things, just like a lot of people, and that her story, while it doesn't have to be overly exciting, the conflict itself can be simple. And Sofia Coppola, I think, is great at those kinds of stories. I think she does an incredible job of just crafting these quiet narratives. And I think that's her director trademark, because watching Lost in Translation, I think that's the word that came to mind for me was just quiet or tender or delicate. And On the Rocks is the same way. It has a lot more comedy to it uh, with Bill Murray in there. But Rashida Jones, I think, brings that quiet, that delicate touch to this movie uh, as is needed. Good stuff. All right. I think we are almost halfway through <laughs> so feel free to listen to this in sections yeah uh, listeners if you we'll take want. a short intermission with the do 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 okay we're back yeah we don't we don't ever go long enough to like have all that set up so right <laughs> sorry all right next up is most exceeded expectations and these are the movies that well they did just that they were our highs 
in a sense, because we expected them to be much lower. I'm going to kind of burst through these. I'm not going to give these a, a ton of like dialogue each, but I'll give you mine first. Onward, for me, huge surprise. Trailers looked absolutely just stupid. The trolls didn't stick out to me as anything visually interesting. It looked like a very generic storyline, and I was like, what is Pixar doing? Like, this is not new. This is not interesting at all. And I went into it going, okay, I'm going to go see this movie because it's Pixar. <laughs> and I fell in love with it. Not just because it's Dungeons and Dragons themed. It's got this fantasy world that I am so familiar with as a geek. But it has an incredible underlying emotional story. Because it's Pixar, and of course it does, about brotherhood and parenting and just a whole bunch of stuff that just wrecks your uh, emotions. And that's awesome. And so it exceeded my expectations. Same with Soul. For me, Patrick, who, which ends up being my number one of the year, we're going to talk about it next week, so I'm not going to say much other than I doubted Pixar again, and I've got to stop doubting Pixar because every single year I'm like, oh, that's not going to work because it's the fourth one in a franchise that should have ended in the third one, and the movie ends up in my top ten. You know, oh, that's just a dumb movie about trolls. Ends up in my top ten. Oh, that's just going to be inside out, but, you know, with different you know, like with souls instead of emotions. Oh, it ends up as my number one. I give up. Pixar owns me. That's just the way it is. But soul is different enough and unique enough that it just wowed me. Uh, it really did. And so those movies exceeded my expectations. couple that I want to point out that I think really hit this category well. Love Guaranteed on Netflix. This is a rom-com of which Netflix puts out like a new one every single week, if not two or three. And it is wonderful. It is incredibly sweet. <laughs> it's basically about a guy who, okay, which Wayans brother was in On the Rocks, Patrick? Is it Damon or Marlon? I think it was Marlon. Okay. Whichever one it wasn't, it's the other one in Love Guarantee. <laughs> and, and the actress is... Rachel from She's All That. I am blanking on names today. Rachel Lee Cook? Yes, Rachel Lee Cook, who I haven't seen in almost anything in years. So he hires her as an attorney to file a lawsuit against this online dating company who has said that if you go on, and I don't remember the number, but it's like if you go on like a thousand dates and you don't find love, then we'll refund your money or something crazy like that. It is the most silliest, cliche, full movie, uh, premise-wise. And yet it is done in a way in which it just it just sucked me in, Patrick, and I thought it was incredibly sweet. Everything that you imagine is going to happen in this movie happens, but the performances are really just... They're so well done. They They buy into this. It's not overly cheesy to the point where it's goofy it's just cheesy in a sweet way maybe i watched it on the right night at the right time i don't know but i loved it love guaranteed on netflix if you like rom-coms this is one that i think in a genre that typically doesn't put out good movies anymore this is one that worked clouds on disney plus similar concept but with cancer films <laughs> so for some reason i really like these or i end up 
I guess reacting to these, but when kids get cancer in movies, I they're good movies for me. It's sad, but it is what it is. This is one of those. A young man gets cancer um, right as he is creating this song with his best friend, and it's all about his experiences. I think it's based on a true story, actually. His experiences going through this process of creating a song that actually becomes a YouTube sensation um, leading up to ultimately how he's going to deal with the cancer in his life and so it's one of those movies it's a tearjerker pulls on your heartstrings but i think it was really really good and nobody you know talks about this one again disney plus and then fat man fat man was awesome was expecting that to be kind of just terrible bill gibson as santa claus this is going to be dumb but i gotta see it just to find out what this is all about turns out pretty darn good movie seen it twice did a podcast on it uh, with some friends and then lastly movies written by brian duffield <laughs> brian duffield is the writer behind these three movies in 2020 underwater spontaneous and love and monsters all three awesome experiences they're not end of year best movies for me but they all three brought something unique and they were all three extremely entertaining throughout and movies that i would watch again and so I think he had an incredibly great year and is someone that I have my eye on now uh, because of those three films. That's a great list. And two of those made mine. <laughs> Onward was on that list for sure for exactly the opposite reasons. Like I was not excited about this movie because of the fact that it took place with a D&D background. Like, this is not my type of film. And, you know, I can get behind inanimate objects, you know, toys or cars or monsters, things like that. I say inanimate objects, you know, monsters is not. But walking into this and really just being reminded that Pixar has talented people working for it, coming on the heels of... Toy Story 4, which, you know, you and I are on opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to how we feel about that movie. I was just kind of going, all right, Pixar, cool. Bring out another one that you're probably going to get nominated for because you've got a great voice cast and you've got a pretty decent story and you've got great animation as always. Yeah, it did everything for me. And it's because of those things. It's that brotherly relationship. It's that father-son relationship. And it's the fact that it's inviting to people who don't get that world. So early on, we kind of get explained these things. And it modernizes this genre or this type of game world that I'm not familiar with, nor would I really get familiar with because it's not something that really intrigues me. And it tells me, that's okay. You don't have to. Just enjoy the show. And I did, and it was fantastic. The Last Dance... The Netflix original series that debuted on ESPN over the course of like eight weeks, which was a smart move because they needed content because of the pandemic. My wife and I watched this thing together. And this is one of those few shows because we're in a world where we can binge a bunch of stuff and not have to wait a week that we both looked forward to sitting down together and watching this. We're not basketball fans. I mean, we don't watch the NBA. But we were Michael Jordan fans. Why? Because we were kids in the 80s and 90s. Okay. Michael Jordan 
was the guy and the Bulls were the team. And watching The Last Dance reminded us of how great he was, reminded us of why we watched him and what an icon can do for the world, not only for the country, but for the world and how he transcended basketball into baseball. We got more insight about the fact that he really did love baseball and he was good at it. And he actually had things going until the strike. You know, these are things that I didn't know about. But watching this documentary play out and seeing how we're getting not only this profile of Michael Jordan that we've never gotten before, but also about this team and uh, and all this drama that was going around before their sixth championship was to be. I love the structure of the documentary. I love the fact that we start at that moment and we go backwards and that we get profiles of different components. We get profiles of the head coach. We get profiles of Michael. We get profiles of Dennis Rodman. We get profiles of Scottie Pippen. We're getting so much more insight about this dynasty, this team that really defined what a dynasty was. And more than anything, Aaron, as much as I loved all the stuff on Michael Jordan, it reminded me that Phil Jackson knew what a team should look like. He understood that, as cliche as it sounds, a team is five people. A team is more than just one guy. And... To see that, to see how he was able to craft this team in a way that made them successful as a team was just mind-blowing. I was so excited to watch it every week, and it was great to share that with my wife. You know, Chris and I don't watch a lot of stuff together, Cobra Kai being one of those things. I love it. We're watching New Girl together. But to sit down and watch each week, have that time to be able to enjoy that and to talk about those things and to be reminded, remember when he did that? Remember when that happened? It was so cool. So from a uh, from a personal standpoint getting a chance to experience that with her but also just from a a a film standpoint a documentary standpoint it's a fantastic documentary it's up there with um with the OJ documentary that's like 8 hours long and i think OJ made in america i i i couldn't recommend that highly enough and it was one that i didn't know about until it came out and i was so glad that it existed last year the last one was one that you mentioned briefly, Spontaneous. I remember you sending me a link saying, hey, do you want a screener for this? And I watched the trailer and I was like, this is bonkers. These are high school kids exploding. Okay, you had me at high school, so maybe I'll stay for the exploding. And I was so surprised at how much I enjoyed this to the point where I was like, is this going to be a contender for one of my top five? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. What stood out to me was the fact that you take this concept, and Anna in the Apocalypse does this too, you take this concept that is so bizarre and you use it to amplify what is real in the life of a high school student. And some of the themes that are really fleshed out, I said fleshed out, they're exploding, sorry. I don't know if that's a pun or not. But you see how these kids in the midst of this thing that's happening are asking the same questions that high school kids do. What's going to happen after I leave? Should I leave town? Um, what's going to happen after I graduate? What's life going to be like if we don't have each other? And it feels honest, and it feels really worthy to be like included in some of the 
great dramas this year, at least for me personally. I can't speak for everybody. I think because of the bizarreness of the of the concept, I think it's probably not going to be considered necessarily. But watching it and the performances, it really did impact me in a way that I didn't expect. And I remember sharing it with a friend of mine, a, a coworker who's now moved on. He's doing some other stuff now. And he was gripped by it just as much in those same types of ways where he watches this movie and he goes, man, I was that kid who struggled to tell his parents what was going on to really open up to them. And because I didn't think that they would listen to me, these are high school kid problems, but they're wrapped up in such a bizarre type of thing that it maintains that entertainment value without squashing some of those deeper themes that I personally connected to. So yeah, those are my three. Good stuff. Uh, let's see. Biggest disappointments. Um, so Wonder Woman 84 for me was a big disappointment because, and again, most of my big disappointments are, they're disappointments because I went into them with high hopes and big hype. And Wonder Woman 84 specifically coming at the end of the year as our first, our only comic book movie? No. I, I guess, I here's the thing. I wouldn't have expected Bloodshot to be the best comic book movie of the year, but here we are. And... We waited months and months and months and months for one of these movies to finally come out and stop being delayed. And it just didn't quite hit that mark for me. It felt underwhelming, and I was not a fan of the flow. I don't like the CGI in these films. I think that it is very lackluster. I think that Gal Gadot's charisma is one of her greatest qualities and it was like not present at all hardly in this movie for some reason I was not a fan of bringing Chris Pine back to play this character in the way that they did I think that that felt very much like a studio move uh, in order to get a star back into the movie um, there's just a weirdness to the way that that whole storyline takes place and the way that the characters interact that's quantum uh what's the what's the show quantum 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 leap. leap quantum leap style scenario where it's not really him it's some other dude's body that she's interacting with and yet and so he's gonna go away but the dude's still there it's weird it's weird uh i just didn't love it didn't love it uh, i didn't it was fine you know i thought it was fine and for me fine was way underwhelming compared to what i expected from that movie mank another big disappointment for me less so than maybe some of these others simply because the subject matter was definitely not going to be something I wanted to see from Fincher if I was given the opportunity to dictate to him what kind of movie I wanted him to make. Like I like him doing stuff like the social network and crime thrillers uh, preferably, but Mank just kind of fell short for me as a prestige flick uh, did not live up to like watching Citizen Kane, which it's kind of inspired by Peninsula uh, is the, follow up to train to busan which is an amazing movie and i really even fell in love with train to busan more watching it to get ready for peninsula and what train to busan is is this zombie movie this propulsive you know zombies the outbreak is happening and this father is trying to get his daughter to safety it's really what it boils down to and zombies are overwhelming things and there's so many great character moments in this movie and emotional depth to the way that people are handled throughout it and it ends with a real stinger 
of a shot as well. And then Peninsula ends up being all in the dark and a completely different style of movie. It's more like uh, an assault on a zombie complex, lots of big effects and, you know, major battles and things like that, which is not what Train to Busan was at all. So it's just totally, totally out of whack with what Train to Busan was and a huge letdown in that regard. The Five Bloods coming off of Black Klansman for Spike Lee. I really appreciate even more how restrained Spike was on Black Klansman and how much he followed a structure in that film. And Defy Bloods kind of goes back to some of his roots of just doing whatever he wants. And I know some people appreciate that and I can respect it, but I don't have to enjoy it. And that's the difference. We talked about it on our episode there too. I saw a movie, Patrick, in Defy Bloods and in the story that was a five-star best of the year kind of contender for me. And it just falls apart. The editing, the additional weirdness that Spike likes to cut in and out of kind of just took it away from me. You know, like the base story from A to B, the character work in that movie, there's something there that you knock out 30 minutes of it and another person comes in and helps Spike like streamline that movie and I would have loved it. And so it's disappointing to me that I didn't get to see that because the way that this film actually plays out continually jolts me in and out of being able to enjoy it in that way. And last but not least, my biggest disappointment for a moment was Tenet. And I, before, so I've already said something. So did you get to see it? You haven't no, seen it. No, you can spoil it. It's fine. I don't want to spoil it. Okay, then give me a thumbs I'm gonna up. I'm going to say this. My biggest disappointment was Tenet. After my first viewing, it is no longer my biggest disappointment. Okay. And so I will say my biggest disappointment was going to a theater one time during the pandemic. One time. Washington opened for like two weeks before we had to shut back down. And I got to go see Tenet. And everything was riding on that, Patrick, as you know, because it was our most, you know, we were the most excited about the movie. Yeah, of course, because of Christopher Nolan. And my experience was not up to what I needed and wanted it to be. And I left utterly depressed because of that. Not just because of the movie and what the movie is itself, but because of my experience, the way in which I had to take it in, everything around it. And luckily, that all changed when I was able to get to see it at home, finally, when it came out on home video. And so I'm excited about that. But it doesn't take away from my only theater viewing since March being a disappointment. And I'm right back to being in that place where I'm just desperately anxious to get to a movie theater and kind of wash that out of my memory and have something amazing to look forward to. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, Wonder Woman 84. I think I'm not as low on it as a lot of people. I don't want to hate on it. It was fine. It was definitely a deviation from the first one in a way that, I think there were expectations when you look at Wonder Woman, even if you didn't love it, if you didn't like it, it set a different kind of tone that I think a lot of people in the DCEU were like, see, it doesn't have to be all doom and gloom. and We've got a great female protagonist and blah, blah, blah. And there was a lot about it that was pretty fantastic. I think we were talking about it 
with uh, Andrew Dice. He came on and talked to us and talked with us about about that one. This one felt like it went into a Marvel-esque world, only in a little bit cheaper way. I agree with you. I think bringing back Steve Trevor was a little frustrating for me because of the fact that the first film leaves this character, Diana Prince, with that grief and how to get through it. And instead, we get a, hey, we'll give you one more chance to get rid of that grief and to finally get through that. And there were parts that felt really hokey. There were parts that felt like it was being filmed in the 80s in terms of taking those types of filmmaking styles and ideas. And I could forgive it for that, except for the fact that they were it felt dramatic in a lot of ways. Wonder Woman 84, if it were played for laughs, which I don't think it could be, I think it would fail at that because the first film didn't lead it there. I think if it were if this were the first entry or a lighter entry like a Shazam, I think it would have succeeded better. But the fact is you've got one third of the Trinity, Batman, Superman, and now Wonder Woman. You can't deviate like that. And I think Wonder Woman 84 at times didn't really know what it was trying to do. I think it was trying to create a fun script. And and I agree, Aaron, I, I've, I'm always going to be a proponent of practical effects over special effects, which is why superhero movies are not necessarily going to be high on my list. I mean, they'll be up there for the expectation of like, well, you know, the world's going to be interested in this. So I'm interested in it. It's like the Mandalorian. People ask me, have you seen the Mandalorian yet? No, not yet. We're going to at some point. Like, Why not? Well, because it's not really high on my list. And I'm not a huge Star Wars guy. I don't really want to see that. And like you, I, you know, Wonder Woman 84 was one of those movies. I was like, cool. I'm excited that it's coming to HBO Max. It'll essentially be a free movie for me to watch. My wife and I sat down and watched it. And we both left that experience going, that was kind of dumb. <laughs> and that's not to say that the performances were were bad necessarily. They were fine. And so it's one that I'll probably watch again, but it was something that wasn't very memorable and didn't leave me aching to see a third entry necessarily. The Defy Blood, same thing. Just uh, I'll co-sign with what you said. Love the Black Klansman. I love Black Klansman. Love the restraints. I think that's personally a better story to be told. At times during Defy Bloods, it just felt like political commentary, trying to bring what was happening back then to today's world. And it was done, I mean, cleverly, but it was a little bit too on the nose for my taste. So I wanted more from that and didn't get it. And this third one is not necessarily like, oh man, it was terrible wanted it to be better we'll probably watch it again but uh bad education i think we covered it early on and love hugh jackman's performance love the performances in it but i didn't feel after watching it like it was amazing and not that every movie has to feel that way but i want every movie with hugh jackman in it to be amazing i'll just say that on the record i mean you know that but it's one that i think i want to go back and revisit i remember liking it but remember wanting to love it and i didn't so it's not bad necessarily by any means i'd recommend it to a lot of people who have hbo max it's a it's it's a it's a really good drama it's different it it wasn't something that i expected so maybe it should be on the 
most exceeded expectations or unexpected list, but I think it would live in both places appropriately. Yeah, you're right. The cast alone with Jackman and Janney, mm-hmm. and they're giving good performances. And so you're like, you know, it's one of those movies that I think it's hard to peg, like, what's missing. It was just kind of fine. Again, mm-hmm. like Wonder Woman, like, you're right. It's, and that's where these expectations come into play. You know, we have our hopes, maybe, even more than expectations. Is You just, you're like, man, this is a true story. It's wild. Like, I want it to be awesome. And it, yeah. it's just kind of like, oh, it's, it's okay. And it needs it, a Sorkin happens. script. That's all it is. It just needs a Sorkin script. That'll that's very true. <laughs> all right. Favorite episodes of the show that we recorded. I'm going to run through mine, and then I'll let you run through yours again. Main episodes. I break mine up a little bit, so I have a couple different little sections here. My main episodes that I enjoyed the most, episode 257, The Art of Racing in the Rain. I said a little bit about it before, but again, loving, falling in love with F1 racing, which the film is, you know, largely has a theme of that embedded in it. And then this being part of our dog-themed month as I was getting my puppy just elevated this movie for me and being able to have this conversation with you is just one of my most enjoyable ones of the year. And that's what really most of these episodes are all about. These were the best conversations with Patrick I got to have. That's what a favorite episode is. So it's because we got to talk about something we loved in many cases. And really that's what it is with the rest of these. The other main episodes I loved were the runs we did on BBS which is episodes 248 through 250. That's your Batman section. And then 253 through 52 through 254 is our Superman section. And just you totally buying into loving the Batman films and discussing them with me, knowing I'm a super fan. And then me conversely, you know, throwing myself fully into the Superman films and world. My first time in decades that I can even remember watching Superman one and two getting to go through that with you was such a joy, you know, having man of steel be elevated to a five-star movie this time around uh, for me and just seeing it for really a masterpiece that I think it is in the superhero cinema. Those six were awesome. Just, it was just freaking awesome. I mean, all of these episodes, the thing about them is these are the ones that Patrick, I got excited about Sunday nights when we were going to record. And, you know, you do this every single week and listeners, you know, it's a lot like playing a sport or doing a live show on Broadway or whatever else you may do. Sometimes you're not feeling like you have your A game that night. And sometimes we don't have our A games, but sometimes you come extra ready to go. And for all of these, the excitement level that is there and being able to share these conversations together, that elevated them. So the other group was our Fast and Furious series. I mean, Episodes 231, 232, 234 to 235, 237, and then 239 and 240. We had some gaps in there because we were doing other stuff. We had donor picks, man. This is a long series to go through. But we went through every single one of them, and dude, I mean, I would do it again. Just because I want to watch them again and talk about them again. And they were amazing. So we had so much fun. And the pandemic for us, allowed us the opportunity to do this because it took theater movies off the table for us for a while. And while I'm ready to get back to those, uh, and I'm excited about January and February for us because we're going to cover some of 2020's best movies and be able to kind of catch up. But 
in a sense, getting to like just every week be like, what do we love, Patrick? What do we want to talk about that we enjoy? It helped us reset this year and get to a point where we no longer ever want to feel like we are covering something because it's hyped, because it's hot, because it's in conversation, or that we don't enjoy. And some people may criticize that and may say, well, no, real film criticism is being able to talk about good and bad. To that, I would tell you, that's not what our goal is on this show. Our goal is to talk about movies and go into their themes and their emotional connections that we form with them. And 90% of those are going to be with movies that we enjoy watching. And so sometimes we're going to have to talk about something we didn't like as much, but we're just not going to force ourselves to sit here and struggle to have a conversation about something we didn't have fun with. So it is what it is. Uh, but I think that that felt very freeing for me this year. Had a couple of uh, interviews this year that stood out. We got to talk to Bob Gale, the screenwriter of Back to the Future. Super awesome experience for us. Uh, more so, I would even say more so for Patrick. And for me, as a best friend, like getting to watch you be able to talk to somebody that wrote one of your favorite movies of all time. Oh, it was, so good. was a neat experience because for me, it's not, you know, it's not that big for me. It, it was a big, but it wasn't that big. And I just was honored to be able to be a part of that with you. And then the creators of console wars that stood out to me because gaming hi, talked about the podcast earlier that I do or did with the games. And I'm a big video gamer. And it just, that was a ton of fun getting to talk through the guys that wrote the book console wars and then made, this documentary based off of it, which I thoroughly enjoy and recommend. It's on CBS All Access uh, if you have it. Last but not least, Patrick reminded me right before the show that this was in 2020. <laughs> totally forgot. But Director Month last year in January was on one of my favorite, one of our favorites, Makoto Shinkai. Uh, episodes 210, 212, 214, and 215. We went through his entire main filmography. So we've done your name weathering with you and now we've done the other four and it was a purely joyful experience uh getting to talk through all of those movies which i love with all of my heart well you've pretty much taken all mine and that's fine because i mean that means that we you know same mind there we got uh great minds think alike in that regard I will say that I want to add two more. One is uh, the Shutter Island episode with Zoheb Ali. That's episode 246. He runs the Midnight Double Feature podcast. And he's also an Aussie, which I think is fantastic. And we can talk to somebody on the other side of the planet. That's really kind of cool. It reminds me of how great technology can be. But the conversation with him and with the movie itself, he brings such an elevation. I want to have him back because I loved his conversation. I love the fact that he brought insight to the conversation he actually he's one of the first guys on our show that were like hey i didn't realize this about the movie you know it's it's those aha moments when you're talking like we did with you know our episode on passengers just having that moment like i didn't really think about that but that's kind of cool but a little off the cuff i know that we have a we don't have a script necessarily but we have notes and we try to keep it pretty tight so we don't sound like we're rambling even if we do but zoheb i think is one of those guests that you want to have on because he elevates the conversation. Obviously, you and I, we enjoy the conversation together. So when we bring a guest on, like Kales or like Don, we're, we want those guys to be able to 
bring something to the table. And that's why we bring them on because they do. And I think Zoheb is one of those guys that does that and did that for Shutter Island. It made for a really, really fantastic conversation on a really great movie, to be honest. Yeah. So I know I probably shouldn't do this live, but I'll say this. I was trying to think what Zoheb's top 10 was. And I remember him being like the biggest and loudest champion of Tenet that I have seen all year long. He'd already seen it twice when we when we had him on the show, I think. Yeah, and that was before like anybody ever got to it. Like, well, yeah, he get it. He got to actually go see it in Australia. Right. But that would be one that we could potentially uh, invite him back for if you were inclined. Totally cool with that. And by the way, I plan on watching it twice before the podcast so that I can appreciate it in all of its rewatchability. <laughs> with subtitles. <laughs> with sub- okay. Subtitles. <laughs> all right. What, what else? What else? So the other the other one was not a full episode, but this is one that stands out to me. It was an FF Plus with Jordan Beck talking about his animated film that he helped work on, Sergeant Stubby, which I am going to recommend to any dog lover, any animation lover out there. That was in 2020? That was in early 2020. I think it was no, in January. I'm I done. I'm just I done. I know, right? How <laughs> in the world? I had to do a little research, to be honest, because, I mean, yeah, 2020 was such a blur, right? But I I think with him, what I enjoyed about the conversation with him is the way in which, look, it was an interview with him, honestly. We got to ask him about the animation process. And through that, we got a chance to get to know him, get to know what his interests were. And he's become a friend of the show. He's part of the Facebook group. He gave us um, appropriate crap for not including Stubby in our list of favorite dogs from movies, which we apologize for profusely. So I'll go on record and say, yes, honorable mention, Sergeant Stubby, one of the great animated dogs in film history, saying it right now. But I loved that conversation because from a technical standpoint, for someone who likes making films, he told us all about like what that process was and what how they prepared to tell that story why they chose animation why they chose that particular style and i loved the interview but more than anything else i love the relationship that we have with him afterwards he's a film guy just like we are and uh, he's a lot of fun on social media i'm on twitter i see him every once in a while floating around there but yeah it was a great conversation and i love that one Fantastic. Well, I'm glad that we agreed on so many of these because it makes me happy and it means that we are picking the right movies, frankly, I think, if we're both, you know, having those similar experiences. That episode was January 16th when it dropped, so it was just inside 2020. Well, I apologize then because I would have definitely put that in my little interview groups of favorite episodes if I had had any recollection that it was actually in 2020 2020 is just black hole man i don't know oh incredible well our feeling five um still quite a bit here to go through patrick so i don't know (laughs) we'll get through as we can but uh what is one of your feeling five let's go back and forth on these we'll probably have some of the similar ones too sure yeah i'm gonna put spontaneous on there as i mentioned before i think it's a great movie that stands out to me as one of those surprises that hit me in the heart uh, and helping me kind of remind me of what it was like to be a high schooler 
surrounded by this whole craziness that was happening in the movie. I think it's a great way to tell that kind of story in a fresh way. So yeah, that was one of them. All right. My first one is going to be ride your wave. And I can't remember. Did I talk about this on the podcast at all? Yeah. I've, I've been talking about this movie so much to everybody I possibly can find. I think I did on our FF plus, but should people have not listened to that episode, I'll just real briefly tell you ride your wave is an anime film from uh, a director uh, and Masa Yusaka. I can't remember his name and I'm going to butcher it now. And he typically does a little bit more fantastical type of films. They're a little more out there. And this one is fairly reserved. It's fairly simplistic. It has a fantasy aspect to it that comes into play, but it is largely about love and loss. And it is unique in that it covers an adult couple. They're a couple that are in their early twenties that are falling in love. They're not teenagers, which is different for this anime romance type of film it is very much in the vein of like a your name and a weathering with you uh with the relationship type of uh, interactions that play out and it's got some la la land vibes to it as well there's a song in it that has a repeated um uh, theme and it plays into the film itself there's a a purpose for it being repeated as often as as it is and it will be stuck in your head after seeing the movie for sure but it is just one of the movies that i've seen the most i think i've seen it three times now and it's like a comfort blanket for me i think it is a great examination of what it's like to go through that romantic period and there's nothing to me that's silly and cheesy about it it's just super restrained not over the top with the way that these characters are and and they feel very realistic to me and so um yeah it ends with some fantasy elements but they are instituted in the film i think in a very positive way in which it's accessible for modern audiences in you know some anime films are not going to be but I think that this one is. It's available on Hoopla at my library, so I can get it for free. Uh, if you have a library card, you can use Hoopla. So I would say check that out. See if you can find it on Hoopla where you live, because both the Japanese original version and the English language version, which has awesome voice acting, so I highly recommend it. Uh, they're both on there. All right, the next one for me is Promising Young Woman. This is a movie that I remember texting at one point saying man I, I don't want to be a guy anymore because of how I feel and that's something that I don't get to feel a lot is how crappy it is to be a guy but as the movie goes on you realize it's a certain kind of guy that you don't want to be and you know watching this play out it it feels like kind of a more intense version of bombshell like there are more moments that are awkward that linger and they do so very effectively and watching Carrie Mulligan's performance in this just completely elevates that. So you watch this movie and you watch it with intent. You watch it with a little bit of humor. And it's one of those movies where you're laughing at certain points, but you're going, should I be laughing at this? It's kind of like a Quentin Tarantino scene where, okay, this is pretty violent. Okay. It's lingering a little. Okay. Am I supposed to be laughing anymore? Cause this is getting kind of awkward, but 
it doesn't linger so long that you lose the impact of what's happening. And so there are several of these moments that aren't just moments. They really help tie the narrative together. And throughout the whole movie, you're left kind of thinking several things. At least I was thinking, what can I do? What should I do? How come I don't know about this? And what else out there is this affecting? When you leave a movie asking those questions, I think that's a good thing. It's one of those movies that should leave you asking questions, but it does so in a way that I think leaves you feeling equally as entertained as you are thoughtful. And that's not necessarily an easy place to be because most movies I either want to feel entertained or feel thoughtful. I don't want to feel both and I want to at least feel better. And so there's a, there's a bit of a weird feeling afterwards, but I think it's a feeling that's worth engaging in a conversation about some of the things that took place in the story, but it definitely left me thinking and left me feeling. That's awesome. Um, Basically, everybody on Letterboxd hates men, too, when they review this movie, so you're not alone. <laughs> you can hate yourself. You're you're with all the women now. <laughs> all right. Well, um, I guess I'm a feminist then. <laughs> Maybe. I'm excited to talk about that one when we get to go through it on a full episode here in a few weeks. It's on the list. So let's see. Movies that I've already talked about. That one, that one, that one, that one, that one. Here's one I haven't. Dick Johnson is Dead. This is a documentary on Netflix. Uh, by a documentary and film documentarian filmmaker here in Seattle. Actually, she Seattle and New York goes back and forth. And essentially, what this is, her dad is nearing death. He's aging, and he is starting to experience uh, dementia and memory loss. And they set out on this filmmaking adventure together as a way of bonding together and a way of preparing themselves for his eventual death where they film like dra- dramatized exaggerated examples of him dying <laughs> so he will act out and be filmed you know in a way in which like he falls down the stairs and dies and then they'll have a bunch of narrative around it kind of discussing things and it you know, it's a lot of talking. It's a lot of kind of interviewing of her father, history of the family, talks about the things that he remembers um, when he remembers them and the things that stuck out to him in his life and what he, um, you know, what he will always take with him in the future um, as well. And so it's a beautiful experience to go through. It is absolutely a tearjerker and you know having lost a parent it was it was tough at times to get through frankly but it made me just so jealous as well because i was like gosh you know what better way what better thing to have when your dad is gone than this movie that you made with him celebrating his life and the experience that you got to have sharing your passion with him, it's there forever, Patrick. Like, it's not going to ever go away. And that's something very special for them. And I think it's incredible that we got to witness it as well. And I think everybody should watch this movie. You know, even if it's tough to get through, I promise you, 
then it is worth it and your heart will be full and better for it at the, in the end. And it is on Netflix streaming, so most people should have pretty easy access to it at any point. Dick Johnson is dead. Cool. Um, two of the other three on my list, I've already talked about uh, Soul and Sound of Metal, so I won't go into much more detail. I will say that uh, one of the other ones that stood out to me was The Devil All the Time. This was one of the Netflix original movies starring Spider-Man and Tom Holland <laughs> as not Spider-Man in a very different kind of role, one that I think is uh, pretty incredible, as a matter of fact. And surprisingly, I didn't put him on my uh, my top actors list, but he was good. This is a movie that didn't make my top five necessarily because it was hard to watch. And in some ways, I guess it should be on a list like this because I did feel a lot. But at the same time, it's one of those movies that I didn't want to revisit because it was pretty dark. It's not to say it wasn't good because it was really good. And the the story that it was telling did so really effectively. We get inside the the mind of the the main character of Tom Holland and his character. It's a movie that feels abrupt at times. There are things that happen quickly and they're done so in a way that you don't necessarily linger, but because of what happens in the particular scenes, you're like, whoa, what just happened here? And the fact that it moves on just kind of leaves you going, man, what kind of ride am I in for? It's it's a movie that doesn't feel hopeful necessarily, but it paints a picture of revenge, of anger, of frustration, of gossip, of not necessarily stereotypes, but it's a movie that leaves you going, the world can be cruel, and really just that. And that was kind of how I left that film, was going, man, the world is, is a tough place, and I don't necessarily know if I want to go back to that. I think in a better year, in a year that might be filled with more hopeful types of stories, I could go back to that in in a, the same way that at some point I'm going to play through The Last of Us Part Two when I feel like mentally ready for that. But I think The Devil All the Time is a powerful movie, but it's a movie that for me can only be experienced at certain times when I feel like I'm ready for it. So very powerful but not necessarily one that I'm going to be like, yep, yeah, definitely rewatching that one. Agreed, man. It was a lot to get through, but still one of my favorites of the year and was a very close contender for my eventual top 20 list because I, I think it was a great movie. I just, you're right. It's tough at this time to get through that one. Some others on my list that we've already talked about would be The Way Back, uh, for sure. Nomadland, Clouds, uh, about the cancer patient. Charm City Kings, Onward and Soul, and then the one that I haven't really said much about would be On the Rocks. And you talked about it, and so I would echo basically everything that you said about the performance by Rashida Jones, uh, but also Marlon Wayans, I think we decided on. The thing that On the Rocks, first of all, I'm a Sofia Coppola stan in the first place. I think everything she makes is phenomenal, and she has a delicate touch that is unique and needed in filmmaking 
but there is something about On the Rocks that it's simple. And I think a lot of people kind of were turned off by it because it was simple, but it's simple. And it also doesn't create a villain. And I think people want that. People want the person to be bad and, and the, the, the actions to be justified. And what we get instead is a story about someone who is very much realistic, very much in everybody's place. Anybody's place is a marriage where you're starting to get worn down and things are tough. You've been married, what, 10 years now, Patrick, I think? Something like that? 12, 12. 12, my gosh, 12. And, you know, you're going to go through ups and downs and you're going to go through periods where you question things. Part of being in a marriage, part of being in love, it's a choice. It's a choice you make every day. It's a choice you probably make multiple times a day. And you kind of have to get yourself through some things. And On the Rocks shows that, you know, there is nothing in this that ever shows the husband to be guilty of any sort of bad behavior. But yet this is a person who like any of us can start to create a narrative in your head. And when you start looking for reasons to doubt someone in your life, you will find them. That is a point blank fact. And it doubles as a movie that is about a marriage relationship that simply needs communication and a father-daughter relationship that needs reconciliation and a father that needs to come to grips with who he is and who he has been uh, before he's gone. And so it's beautiful, I think, in the way that it shows the struggles of those two relationships and also in the way that it, to me, satisfyingly and pretty authentically is able to bring them to a place of hope and joy and just they don't have to all end in failure and sadness and depression and i know i'm kind of maybe giving away the ending here but listen that's why i love it and that's what makes it extra unique to me i mean i've lived this relationships i've lived through this period where i'm seeing something on a phone and trying to make up this entire story in my head about what's happening and i think that we have to learn to communicate and this movie shows us that both on both the marriage side and the father and daughter uh, side of these relationships so on the rocks sticks out to me big time as well in the emotional connection category sweet well i only have one more and that's one night in miami this is my number one of the year this is um, a surprise for me. I didn't even know that this existed, which is kind of nice, actually. It's good to see, like, oh, check this out. Get a screener for it. And have this, this is how I felt about Sing Street. You were like, hey, check this out. I think you might like this. And it turned out to be my number one of all time. One Night in Miami is a film based on a 90-minute stage play. And in a lot of the film, you can tell that, which is fine. It doesn't take place over a lot of the city. It's mainly confined to a hotel room and a roof. But what stood out to me, Aaron, was these four characters or these four people, Jim Brown, Malcolm X, Cassius Clay, and I don't remember, I can't remember the, the R&B singer, Sam Cooke. And knowing a little bit about each one but 
being told this story about these four individuals that come together one night in Miami. And as I'm told, this night happened, the conversations were sort of manufactured, but the influence that these four men had on each other coming from four different quadrants of the world, four different areas that they were considered, I guess, professionals in and sparking their role in the civil rights movement over the years to come, seeing how that started and seeing that play out over the course of an hour and a half through incredible dialogue, uh, incredible back and forth conflict to see these four individuals who we know had stuff in common at some point, but at some point they didn't. And to recognize that they all had influence on each other. Like this wasn't a one man show. Malcolm X had his, had his core beliefs. He had his convictions and they affected Cassius Clay, but they didn't necessarily affect Sam Cooke or Jim Brown. But he and his presence and the way in which we see him talk to them influenced them. There's a great conversation between Malcolm X and Sam Cooke that I think is probably my favorite in the entire movie because it speaks to helping me understand an internal struggle among black Americans toward the things that were happening around them. Oftentimes I see movies accurately depicted showing the struggle of black Americans against white Americans, the racism that exists. But it's not often that I've seen, and I haven't seen a lot of movies by people of color. That's something I want to rectify. I haven't seen a lot of those movies that focus on the individuals that exist within that circle and how they could struggle with one another. And to see that, I think, helped give me more insight. We did, it wasn't last year, it was 2019, where we talked about, we did some bonus content on movies that help us understand the black perspective. I think this is another one of those movies that could definitely exist. And apart from that, it's to me, it's just a really well-made film. Um, Regina King, I think, did a great job in her directorial debut, I think having a stage play as your as your vessel and the screenwriter being the person that that wrote the play, I think is a solid strength. And overall, it was just a solid film and one that I walked away recommending to several people. That's one of the things that indicate to me of a a five star movie is one that I feel like I can get excited about that I want to share with other people. And One Night in Miami was tops for me when it came to that kind of criteria. Yeah, I think that's a great criteria to use is the recommendation one. Uh, it's much like rewatchable uh, in that it just really indicates something that has stuck with you. Something that goes beyond the bubble experience of when you're watching it and then it evaporates at that point. It's actually what I struggle with, honestly, every single year. Const- I, I don't think I'll ever not struggle with it, to be frank. Because I see a movie, I have to rate a movie, review a movie, think about a movie, and then it's time to move on to the next movie. And 
sometimes that initial feeling can fade so much so quick that you're like, ah, that was a little bit of an overrating <laughs> that I did there. And then conversely, sometimes you'll be like, yeah, that was okay. And the next thing you know, like three days later, you're like, man, I'm still thinking about that one. And actually one night in Miami was like that for me as well, where it has stuck with me. When I watched it, I actually was like, kind of like, it was fine for me, but it has grown on me over time. Uh, and I'm really excited about the episode we get to do on it for that very reason. And for, to kind of expand on the, the themes and the things that you just talked about and the reasons that you have it as your number one. So good stuff. Most anticipated films of 2021. It's funny because this has like parentheses three total, and I, I can't even count how many I have. Listen, here's the thing. I'm just going to run down a list because we don't need to go into detail. I have parentheses carryover on about 15 things from last year because nothing came out. Top Gun Maverick, still on my list. Still up there, highest of highs for me that I am most excited about. Next year, we get both a Tomb Raider 2 and Uncharted movies, theoretically. All of these are theoretics, okay? Like, so we think, we hope. This is what we're we're wanting. Let's hope we don't have to copy and paste this for, for next year. <laughs> I swear, Patrick, I swear. So those movies are for sure at the highest peak of what I'm excited about. I'm still super hyped for In the Heights, the musical that is coming uh, from Lin-Manuel Miranda. I am really excited about Raya and the Last Dragon from Disney. I added on Luca, Pixar's next film, because, as I said earlier, I'm tired of doubting Pixar. But this one is uh, about a boy who lives on the Italian Riviera and strikes up a friendship with another boy who is secretly a sea monster disguised as a human. Sounds amazing to me. Mission Impossible 7 is supposed to come out next year. I, I really don't think some of these movies are coming out. That's just the facts. Uh, Wicked is supposed to come out next year. I'm pumped for that big screen adaptation. The Last Duel is a movie by Ridley Scott that is going to have sword fighting. So I love that kind of film and I love Ridley Scott. And I think that I will probably gravitate towards that. And of course, we have tons of blockbusters that were supposed to come out this year, Patrick, that didn't. We have Dune to look forward to. We have Fast and Furious 9. We have No Time to Die. Uh, we have Spider-Man 3, which literally has every actor that has ever been in any sort of superhero film in all of time and existence. I think ones that are dead are somehow coming back as ghosts to be in this movie. It is insane what they are doing with this one. Uh, so there's just tons and tons of all the big superhero and blockbuster and action movies that just didn't get to come out this year that are hopefully going to be coming out next year. And I'm still excited for them. Yeah, I mean, I co-sign a lot of those. I, I think to add to that, there's a, there's apparently a Mortal Kombat movie coming out, which I'm pretty excited about. The French Dispatch, the new Wes Anderson movie that's supposed to release that has all the other actors in Hollywood that are not in the Spider-Man movie are going to be in this. So I'm excited about that one, too. West Side Story supposedly released. I think I've said this for like the last two years because it's supposed to <laughs> release in December of some year. And hopefully it releases this year. Um, I think one of the things I'm looking forward to about that is our friend Chad from Cinescope. We, you and I went down and met him to watch, uh, what was it? Baby driver together yep. in Texarkana because he lives in Texas. He and I are going to try to do that same thing for West Side Story this December, get a chance to watch that together. Cause we're both looking forward to that. I was on his show to talk about our love for West Side Story. So that's going to be a lot of fun. 
but yeah, I, I think that um, it's going to be the year of musicals and blockbusters for for me and uh, all those. I, I definitely co-sign. I want to look forward to. And I think if I could just put a big umbrella over this, I will just say movie theaters. That's what I'm yes. looking forward to. Any film yeah. in the theater. I think we're going to echo a bunch of this. So we're not going into depth here. Our January bonus content episode for our Patreon listeners or Patreon supporters is our January 2021 preview where we go into depth on the things that we're looking forward to. So we'll go into more about some of these films and some of the other films that are maybe not as widely known, maybe not the big blockbusters um, that we have on our lists at that time. But I will echo what you just said, and I think we'll probably say it again during that episode, is that I think anything we see in a theater is going to get an automatic boost to our enjoyment factor just because we're there and we're seeing something in that atmosphere once we're able to finally do that safely and consistently. So couldn't agree with you more. Well, this has been fun. We like to wrap it up with a couple questions. Uh, Patrick, any film challenges or resolutions for the new year? You know, no, I think that for me, my life is starting to get a little bit busier with some other extracurriculars. I'm actually getting back into reading a little bit more, but um, I think I'm going to look at exploring some more original series behind the paywall. I think there's a lot of good stuff out there that I haven't checked out yet, and I'm finding that because of my schedule, much like you, if I can find a series that's maybe eight or nine episodes, 40 minutes, 30 minutes uh, per episode, that's a good bite-sized chunk for me to really enjoy so not really a challenge but really more of a focus on limited series and original more documentaries if i could if i could say anything the documentaries that i watched last year were pretty fantastic and i want to watch a few more more so this year if i can co-sign that i think that you should do that because there were a wealth of incredible documentaries this past year i feel like i say that every year it just gets better and better that genre is blowing up and yeah, it's endless how much amazing content you can find right now in the documentary world. I have some, of course. Uh, one of mine is to complete the Letterboxd uh, Top 100 Animation list. It shouldn't be too difficult. I'm already at 67%. Uh, I adore animation, and each year I think that my love for that genre, that type of filmmaking has grown. So it's time to make sure that I've seen all of the so-called best and I'm going to knock that out over the course of this year. My big goal, the one that I'm really excited about this year, is to watch or rewatch films that I own physical copies of, including all of their special features, at a rate of one to two per week. It's probably going to be more like one, Patrick, but it really is going to depend on the amount of special features that are included in the film. What I'd like to do is see this list hit 100 by the end of the year, but that's kind of a stretch goal because I just don't know if it's going to be possible, but I want to hit a minimum of one per week. And I think that this is exciting because it's going to likely lead to increasing my physical film collection, which is never a bad thing. In fact, spoiler alert, I've already ordered four movies yesterday because of this to kind of prep for that. And one of those is Moonlight. I told you it was going to come up at some point. So uh, Moonlight is on the way as well as Pacific Rim. These are all 4K. Uh, Pacific Rim, The Post, and The Shallows, which is an upgrade for me. 
Heck yeah. So, Shallows. yeah. So it's going to allow me, I think, to take advantage of my new surround sound system that I am in love with, my new powerful game consoles that double as 4K video players, and then what will be my next purchase here in the next probably month, uh, an OLED TV that I'm stoked about. So I'm going to have basically finally a legit, incredible home theater set up for me. And I think that there's no better way to experience that than to do this. And I want to be able to dive into those. And the example I'll give is like my first one I'm going to do is tomorrow. It's going to be Top Gun. But Top Gun, I'm going to watch it with the commentary. And on top of that, there is a two and a half hour documentary as well as more com- com- commentary and comments. So we're talking content. We're talking about like, you know, six plus hours probably of movie stuff to watch. I may not be able to get to two next week because of that. And I may run into movies that don't have commentary, in which case, you know, maybe it makes it a little easier, a little quicker. I don't know. But that's my plan. I'll be tracking that on Letterboxd and writing reviews for those. I got an idea from a listener, uh, Tabby, and I'm going to also kind of piggyback off of this a little bit, and that is to pick some of my favorite composers and listen through their film scores chronologically. Never thought about this, but it's a great idea. Much like you'd go through a director or an actor's filmography, right? Watching all of the movies that they've made or they've been in. I want to try to do that with a couple of composers as well. And then last but not least, I want to go through another TV series with Patrick. So whatever is coming next, I do not know yet. We have not decided, I don't think, but it'll be fun. And we're about at that point. Yeah, well, will it be one that you haven't seen or will it be one that we that I haven't seen or will it be one that we've neither of us I mean, do we I think if I'm voting, I'm going to vote for something that neither of us have seen. Okay. That that would be my preferred direction for this next one. Okay. That sounds good to me. If it was one that we both seen, I would say Smallville, but there's it's, it's so long that I, we got to keep we got to ring it. In. Yeah, and it's, it's that's the same problem with the West Wing, honestly. Yeah, it, it, I would prefer to keep well, something that we pick to be a little bit shorter. So, so if if we ever did the West Wing, it would just be the first four seasons, and then I would just you could just Wikipedia the last three seasons because but the that's first still four just, it's still that's yeah still it's, a lot. 80, it's 88 episodes right it's it's a lot so I'll let you curate series that you're interested in that maybe satisfy the length or the duration and good uh, idea and then you can look over those well last we just want to say thank you listeners everybody especially if you got through this episode holy moly we appreciate you and we hope that you enjoyed it we hope you got some film recommendations to take away that you are going to go and seek out on your own and a huge extra thanks to our patreon donors our supporters who help us out financially to keep the podcast running help pay the bills keep the lights on you mean the world to us we thank you Um, and we're excited that this year was the year that we did make that switch to where some of that bonus content it's all now available to everybody so yes if you're a patron you can get it immediately which is a great benefit but if you're not patreon.com slash feeling film you can still go back and you can check out all of our bonus content over the past several years our top five lists our special episode movie reviews There's some fun conversations, a lot of trivia. There's a lot of cool stuff in there uh, that you may not know or ever have gotten a chance to get a a listen to, and we would love for you to do that. Fantastic. Well, that will do it for us. And uh, just to give you a little sneak preview, this next week we're going to have Kales Davis on to talk with us about the aforementioned film that all three of us apparently 
like quite a bit. Disney's Soul that just released this uh, last Christmas. So you'll want to come back for that and enjoy that conversation with us. There is no excuse for you to have not seen this unless you don't have Disney Plus, in which case you don't live on this planet. So please watch it and then enjoy the conversation with us next week. We'll talk soon.